Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're beginning the book of Devarim. We're beginning the book of Deuteronomy this morning. So I, I want to do a little less text today than I want. We'll look at the text, but I want to do a little bit less text than I usually do and commentary on the text and more commentary on Devarim, on Deuteronomy, to give you a framework whereby to look at a lens through which to read all of the texts we're going to read. Devarim uh, is, of course, taken from the Hebrew, like we said, the first kind of usable word of any Parsha becomes the name of that Parsha, and the first Parsha becomes the name of the book. So the first Parsha in Devarim is called Devarim. And that's the name of the book in Hebrew. Things, words. These are Moshe's words. So these are the words that Moshe spoke to the people of Israel uh, on the other side of the Jordan before they were ready to cross into the promised land. Uh, and so uh, it is Deuteronomy comes from the Greek, which means second teaching. Because Deuteronomy, for the most part, is a repetition of the events of the exodus, the wandering, the commandments, and the laws that we have seen in other places. But the fact that we call it the second teaching, Mishnah Torah, also it's known in Hebrew, Mishnah Torah, um, the, the, that, that, that calling it a reiteration is already buying into the agenda of the book of Deuteronomy. Because actually, the book of Deuteronomy is a complete reform of the system. It is a complete reconstruction on many levels of what we have in the other books. So the fact that it's called the second teaching, a reiteration of all those things, already Deuteronomy wins, <laughs> right? Like it, it has convinced you that it is the second repetition, the second, you know, uh, articulation of these things, when in fact it comes to undercut the theology, the legal system, the hierarchy of all of the books before it. While I, of course, have known this, I don't think I really understood to what extent until I read this incredibly long article um, that is called The First Constitution, Rethinking the Origins of Rule of Law and Separation of Powers in Light of Deuteronomy. Um, it's been in my file, my hard file about Deuteronomy for a really long time. I had to use one of these clips. You can't even use a paper clip with it. Um, it's that thick. Um, and finally, I decided, well, this is the time. So I decided to sit down and, and work my way through it. It's not an easy article. Um, but, uh, but really, it's arguing that Deuteronomy is the first constitution the world has ever known, and that it has been ignored by Western political science, uh, and it is ignorant in some ways. Biblical scholars are, because of their specialty, not specialists in political philosophy, and so biblical scholars have not argued, uh, hi, how about Deuteronomy? If you're talking about the founding of the Western legal system, the Western political philosophical system, you have to take seriously Deuteronomy. So um, 
So, so I really dug in to get more of a sense of the, the, the details about that. So I'm going to be quoting that, or even if I don't say I'm quoting it, know that this article by uh, Bernard M. Levinson is going to seriously impact how I teach Deuteronomy this year, uh, as well as uh, the lecturing that I have had the great good fortune to hear from Rabbi uh, Dr. Micha, sorry, not Rabbi, Dr. Micha Goodman. Many of you know him. He wrote the book Catch 67 uh, about Israel. Uh, a, 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 an incredibly brilliant and talented uh, scholar, but also lecturer. His lecture is available at a place called Tikva, T-I-K-V-A-H. This series of lectures, there are eight lectures. Uh, they're half an hour each. So I listened and took copious notes on all of those lectures. Uh, so it is a combination of Micha Goodman and Bernard Levinson that is going to really color my teaching of Deuteronomy for you uh, both today and, go and going forward this year, probably uh, forever. Um, because, because there are... There, there are, there's a lot of confusion about when Deuteronomy is. We all have this confusion around the Torah anyway, right? When is this? When is this written? When did this happen? When did this get written down? When? So the, nothing more so than in the case of Deuteronomy. So I want to begin placing Deuteronomy for you in history. M Moshe gives this final set of speeches to the Israelites according to the author he gives it to them as they're about to enter the promised land. So this is not the generation of the wandering. This is, even though he says, y'all did this and y'all did that and y'all rebelled and y'all made God mad and y'all ticked me off too. And y'all and y'all and y'all, it's not y'all. It's y'all's parents, right? And grandparents who would have died in the desert. But this is the collective y'all. This is the national you. You Americans, it doesn't matter if someone from, from another country is criticizing like Mehmet tends to do, trashes us Americans, right? So if someone from another country, just kidding, Mehmet, if someone from another country comes and says, you Americans, they're not talking about us necessarily. They, they don't know what we believe. They haven't heard that yet. They're saying the tradition of America is you are racist. You own slaves. Obviously, none of us own slaves, but that's not the point. We are identified with the doings of our ancestors, right? We have inherited their worldview. We have inherited the country that sees things a certain way, talks about things a certain way. That's the you that's being used here right, in Deuteronomy, because it is not the generation, even the one in the book is not the generation that did those things. It's, it's their descendants. But when we look at where Deuteronomy is really located in terms of history, it's even way further removed um, from the folks who, like, were engaged in any of the things, which are, you know, mythological things anyway. Um, that Moshe is describing. Okay, so we have all of these other texts. Depending on when you place P, right? Remember, we have an, we, you either have an early P or a late P. I am a proponent of the early P school 
that P takes JE, P takes the JE texts that are already put together right around the time of David, the national history gets written. J and E, the Northern and the Southern tradition get put together. P comes along and uses J-E and manipulates some stuff about J-E for P's own use. And then we have, of course, Leviticus, which is all P, which is all the priestly source. So everything I'm saying is negated on some level if you have a late P. Because if you have a late P, P is also editing Deuteronomy. I am not from that school. I believe in an earlier P, D, therefore, Deuteronomy is our latest source. Yeah? It's the last redactor that, that touches the Pentateuch and makes it the Pentateuch by adding Deuteronomy. Okay? B- before it was four books. Now it's the Pentateuch with five books. And if you take the Deuteronomic history that continues into the book of Joshua, you have the Hexateuch. You have the six books of the biblical authors and the biblical period. Okay. Jeremiah is also from this school. Jeremiah, uh, Micha Goodman brought many texts from Jeremiah to talk about Deuteronomy because Jeremiah is from the same school as Deuteronomy. He has the same agenda as Deuteronomy. All right, so let's place Deuteronomy in history. Where does it go? We tend to think because we get told over and over and over, this happened on the plains of Moab on the other side of the Jordan. We keep going back to putting this in the mouth of Moshe, of Moses. This text, we believe, most scholars agree, is part of a complete revamping of the system. And we looked at some of these texts. Remember when we looked at the text of carrying out the idols from the temple? Right? And everybody freaked out that there were idols in the temple? Right? That is the, that is the reform that we're talking about. That, it was revolutionary in some ways. When is it happening? It is happening in seven, around 722. So King Hezekiah is the king involved, right? Who in the beginnings of all of this, under Josiah is when the scroll of Deuteronomy is found. So if you'll recall, how do we explain Deuteronomy? It is found in the temple during temple renovations. And the scroll is taken to Hulda, the prophetess, who authenticates Deuteronomy as, in fact, being an ancient text. Now, this guy worked through every possible argument about why it doesn't work to have a scroll having been actually found. Because, A, if you knew about Deuteronomy, wouldn't you have a second copy? Like, if it was already part of the canon, if it was already accepted, wouldn't you have a second copy? How could... How could it just get lost? And if it was lost, how come no one went looking for it? If it was, let's say it was already known, right? How did it get lost behind a wall in the temple? If it was that important, that it was part of the canon, it wouldn't have gotten missing. And then somebody would have gone looking for it, right? And certainly people would have remembered enough about it to say, okay, well, let's write down what we remember until we find the original copy. 
right? There, there's just not a lot that supports anything about this having been a text that was important, legislation that was understood and accepted, and then lost. It just doesn't make any sense on any real level. So everyone agrees that this is a fiction. Most scholars agree this is a fiction, that it was lost. What happens is it is a reform. It gets written by the scribes as a reform, meaning you're going to change what the accepted practice, the theology, philosophy, power structures are. You're going to radically change them. How do you sell people on that? In the ancient world, pseudepigrapha. You, you put it in the mouth of someone else. It's pseudepigraphical. So you take a teaching and you put it in the, in the mouth of a respected teacher, leader, whatever. You place it in a more authoritative time in history. That is what they did with Deuteronomy. This was a common thing in the ancient world. So even parts of Kabbalah, right, are written by Moshe de Leon, are put in the mouth of a, right, a Rebbe, you know, a, a, an authoritative rabbi, right? Okay. So where is Josiah located in history? This is, this is hard to hang on to, um, so write it down if you want. <laughs> but by 722... Um, so, so the north of Israel has fallen. The north, the northern kingdom of Israel has fallen to Assyria when Deuteronomy is written. The north has fallen to Assyria. Neo-Assyria is taking over the entire region. And Hezekiah has some choices to make. How much of Judea, how much of Judah how much of the southern kingdom of Judah is Hezekiah ready to fight for and to try to keep uh, sovereign? He has very hard tactical decisions to make. According to Levinson, this article I read about Deuteronomy being the first constitution, he argues that Hezekiah is pulling in all of those communities at the edges, all of the rural communities of Israel, what not Israel, we say Israel, but it's Judah. All that's left is Judah. He's pulling them in and trying to urbanize the Judeans. He's trying to urbanize and center all authority in Jerusalem as an effort to strengthen the kingdom so that it can survive a Neo-Assyrian attack. He makes a, a pact with Neo-Assyria so that he can buy peace and be left alone. It turns out that's not who they had to be worried about. Who, who crushed, who destroyed the temple? The Babylonians. The Babylonians. Thank you, Pam. The Babylonians destroyed the temple. The Babylonians were resurging right? Neo-Assyria turned out not to be the problem. They were conquered by the Babylonians. Then the Babylonians turned on, on Judea and, and crushed Judea in 586. So sorry, I flipped my times. So 722, Israel falls. 
722, Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel falls to Neo-Assyria. 622, so 100 years later, comes the Josianic reforms. Hezekiah returns to Yahwistic worship and doubles down on Yahweh and only Yahweh, right? All the other stuff has to go. All these statues of Asherah, all this kind of syncretistic worship of Baal, all of that has to go. This is how we will prevent falling to Neo-Assyria, who doesn't turn out to be the real problem, but whatever, right? This is how we will be protected, is that we will have a religious reform. We will put Yahweh back at the center. Politically, the power structure has to change. Now, everything has to be centered in Jerusalem. We've always talked about Deuteronomy being about centralization of worship as well as a a political power, but we haven't really talked a lot about why, right? So so it's because, according to Levinson, it's because um, Hezekiah is pulling in and focusing on the urban center with Jerusalem at the very epicenter and is leaving rural communities to kind of, their whole way of life is going to change. All of it's going to change. The whole power structure is going to change. All right. So who makes decisions traditionally, up till now, by the way, up till 622, who makes the decisions in local places when there is a conflict? Who adjudicates conflicts in in, uh, rural settings in these, you know, villages all over Israel? Who adjudicates? The clan elders adjudicate, and they sit in the city gates, right? We see this all over Torah, right? They're sitting in the city gates. They're using the Israelite law to to deal with all the kinds of things that come up between people. When somebody, let's say, comes into contact with a corpse because they have to bury their brother-in-law, who do they go to? They go to the priest at the local shrine, and the priest takes care of business. What if you think you might have sarat? What do you do? You go to the priest for diagnosis. These were priests in local shrines. If you wanted to eat meat, you, the only meat that you could eat until Deuteronomy is sacrificial meat, and sacrificial meat what right meant you only got to eat meat when you went to your local altar and shared with your local priests a portion of your offering. And look at uh, Exodus, look at Numbers, look at especially Leviticus. It is replete with uh, descriptions of sacrifice and what the priests get, what you get, how you eat it, how you don't eat it, what's allowed, what's not allowed, right? Lots and lots of discussion about that. God lives where? In the Mishkan. And later, of course, and that's a a, a code for the temple. God's presence sits over the ark. God speaks to Moshe and therefore to the people from the, between the Kruvim, from between the cherubs on the ark. God's voice comes out. Sometimes God's fire goes forth, right? When we see the the consuming of Nadav and Avihu. God is very close. God lives in the Mishkan. God lives in the temple, specifically at the Ark. 
right? The Ark of the Covenant is a huge focus. It is carried into battle as God's throne. God's presence rides on the throne of the Ark and protects the people in war, okay? This is, you all know all of this. I'm just repeating all this to remind us, right? Deuteronomy comes to say, uh-uh, uh-uh. God is in heaven, in the sky. God doesn't come down on the mountain for revelation. God speaks from the clouds, from the sky. God does not live in the temple because Deuteronomy is coming to undercut the priesthood. Deuteronomy is coming to say, What governs Israel is the law. Deuteronomy, the law. The law, um, is there a distinction between local priests and the clan elders? Yes. Two branches of local government. One would have been religious. So all the cultic things that needed to happen, including some uh, uh, discrepancies that are civil. If you can't, if there's no evidence or witnesses, then it's cultically decided. If you don't have evidence to win your case, or the, the judge doesn't have a, the elders don't have enough evidence, it's decided by the cult. So the priest, the local priest, would have decided it cultically. So good, but good anticipation, Richard, of what the problems Deuteronomy is going to create are. Right. So you've got two branches of local government that are now subsumed under centralization in Jerusalem. I want this is why I'm doing this at great length. I want you to read everything from sentence one of chapter one to the very end of Deuteronomy. I want you to read it all through this lens. This is our experiment. Remember, we read Genesis through an ancient Mesopotamian lens. We're going to read, whether this is true or not, we're doing something different. We're going to read every word of Deuteronomy through this lens. Let's see what that does to our understanding of Deuteronomy, right? And the agenda of the Deuteronomist and the school of Deuteronomy. So these, these local branches of government are now shut down. The people have no access to local shrines. Now, their sacrifices have to be done in Jerusalem or they have to send money to Jerusalem for an animal to be bought and offered on their behalf. They are, they are given the dispensation to eat meat, but think about what that means. They can now eat meat, but it is emptied of, of, of religious uh, meaning. God, they used to get, what did they do when they ate that meat and they gave some to the priest? People were eating their meals with God, right? When you brought a sacrifice, some went to God, some went to you. You were giving God half your sandwich. You ate the other half. You and God sat down to a picnic. The priest got the potato chips, whatever. So you sit down and, right, they get some coleslaw, a hot dog, but you're basically sitting down and giving God a burger, And you're having another burger off the grill. You're eating with God. Think about for a minute what it means to empty their barbecues of any cultic meaning. Any access 
to the divine through those rituals. It has to now happen in Jerusalem. So, so, so that's number one. Number two, if you want justice, where are you going to go? You now have to go to the, you go through the court system in Jerusalem. All right. So these, these are massive changes that are happening. Massive reordering of Israelite society. And according to Levinson and others, everything now is subsumed under the law. Who is the giver of the law? Ultimately, it is God, right? Who is the agent through whom the law is given? Moses. So it is not a wonder that if what you're trying to do is subsume all the branches of functional society under the law, whose mouth are you going to put it in? the lawgiver, right? Could have been Joshua. Why not make it Joshua? We're going to do things differently now, people. That would have been nice. You want a revolution? Okay. Put it in the mouth of Joshua, the new leader. Moshe gave him his blessing. Moshe dies. You have Joshua give his first speech and it's Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy doesn't want it to be seen as a reform. Deuteronomy wants it to be authoritative. If you want to subsume everything now, everything, including the king, including the priesthood, including the judiciary, if you want everything subservient to the law, you better put it in the mouth of your best lawgiver, which is Moses. All right. Okay. So what are the bra- so this is the other argument Levinson makes is that this is the first time we see set up three the the branches of government all under the law the monarchy the executive branch so your you all of your uh, elders and you know, all those things the executive branch the judiciary and it's an independent judiciary notice right? Um, and what's the other one? The, and the priests and the religion, all subservient to the law. This is radically new. It exists nowhere in the ancient Near East. The ki- Who's the lawgiver in the ancient Near East? In Mesopotamia and in Egypt? The king, who is also a god. Or in Mesopotamia is hanging tight with a god. And receive right and gets the law and get, uh, but but the law comes from the king inspired by the divine in Israel it is God who gives the law through Moshe, Moshe God's servant All right everything under the law and each branch having its own set of laws governing how it runs each branch being having checks and balances by the other branches, guess what? That's a constitution. When you have the law being at the top, not the king, you have a constitutional monarchy. The monarch is subject to the law. And if there's a question, is the king following the law? Who decides that? You go to the judiciary. That is what we have in Deuteronomy. I don't think I ever really quite got how radical that is. 
and, and how it really is the basis of Western political philosophy vis-a-vis three, four coexistent branches of government with checks and balances on each, each being equally powerful in their areas, all under the law. All of them report up to the law. That produces a certain number of problems and challenges for Moshe as he's recounting what happened in the past. When we think about where did we get a judiciary, where did we get, looking at Exodus, where do we get the judiciary? Or maybe it's numbers, I forget. Where, where does the, the judiciary system come from? Judges. This amount of judges over that many people, then it goes to a higher court. Finally, it goes to the Supreme Court, which is Moshe, because Moshe will take it to God. So where did that come from? What is the origin myth? Lisa, unmute yourself and speak instead of jumping up and down. Muted. Which is what I tend to do. Moses adjudicates it. Moses is told by, um, duh, you know, we know who uh, Moses is told. You know what I'm trying to say. He he has too much. He's doing too much. And it's his father-in-law that tells him, Moses, you can't do this. You have to give the authority to others. So he adjudicates it. He, he creates the system by making others responsible and helping and answering their own questions. But where did it come from? The idea, the concept comes from Jethro. It came from, yeah. Is Jethro Israelite? No. No. Jethro is Midianite. He's the high priest of Midian. A problem for the Deuteronomist who is originating all of this in God. The law comes from God. You can't have your independent judiciary coming, God forbid, from a foreign culture that predates, by the way, the revelation at Sinai. So it has to be Exodus. It predates the revelation at Sinai. If it's Midianite in origin and it's given to Moshe as a system before revelation, what's your problem? What's the Deuteronomist problem? Uh, then it doesn't originate with God, right? And it does it through the mouth of Moshe. It comes before revelation through Yitro. That is a problem. Exodus 18 is a problem for the Deuteronomist. So let's see what the Deuteronomist does. Pam's happy. Look at Pam. I love that. I like it when I make Pam happy. Pam likes it too. Pam's such a geek. I love that. She likes it when I geek out. Okay. So here we go. Here's the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, right? So this is Sefer Devarim. Deuteronomy chapter one, verse one. Okay, so these are the words Moshe speaks to all of Israel on the other side of the Jordan, through the wilderness in the Aravan near Suf, between Paran, Tofel, Avan, Chaseot, and Dizahav. Um, 11 days from Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir route, okay, whatever, whatever. It was in the 40th year. So this is the, right before they're supposed to cross into the Jordan, right? I mean, into Israel. 
the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, that Moshe addressed the Israelites. So this is right at the end. The end of the 40th year, the 11th month of the 40th year. They only have one month left. So they're going to cross over in just a second. That's where Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomist is placing these words right at that moment, um, 30 days before they right, end their 40 years in the Midbar. Moshe addresses the Israelites in accordance with the instructions. This is important, right? Um, that God had commanded Moshe that Moshe give them after he defeated, he had defeated Sichon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon. So don't forget, God helped you win all these battles. On the other side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound what? Et HaTorah Hazot. Deuteronomy is called over and over and over Torah. Teaching, HaTorah et HaTorah Hazot, this Torah. Often when we see Torah mentioned in the Bible, uh, well, specifically in Deuteronomy, it means the book of Deuteronomy. It does not mean all five books, right? That a king should write a Torah probably means a king should write the book of Deuteronomy out. All right, so Deuteronomy is called Torah, very important. What does Moshe say? Yudhe Vavhe, right? Eloheinu, Yudhe Vavhe, our God, Diber Eleinu Bechorev, spoke to us in Chorev. This is how Deuteronomy refers to the events of Sinai. The Deuteronomist refers to the mountain that that all happened at as Chorev. So God spoke to us at Chorev, saying, Rav Lachem, it's enough for you. Shevet Bahar Hazed, that you're sitting around, hanging around this mountain. Pnu, usulachem, turn around and go out, go, and make your way right to the hill country of the Amorites, to all their neighbors in the Arava, the hill country, blah, 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 blah. See, I place the land at your disposal. Go, take possession of the land that Adonai swore to your fathers, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, to assign to them, to their heirs, after them. Thereupon I said to you, Moshe says, I said to you, I can't by myself bear y'all. God has multiplied y'all until you are as numerous, right? As we remember it said to Avraham, you are as multiple as rove as the stars of the sky. <clears throat> God, the God of your ancestors, right? May God increase your numbers a thousandfold and bless you as God promised you. Echa. Do you see this word? Echa. How? This is not just how. Oh, well, you take a teaspoon of this and a teaspoon of that and mix it together. It's not that kind of how. This is a existential how question. Echa, esalavadi, tarchachem, amas echem, verivchem. How, how is it possible that I can bear unaided the burden of you, the trouble of you, right? The, the arguing, 
pick from each of your tribes men who are wise, discerning, and experienced, and I will appoint them as your head. And you all answered me, what you propose to do is good. So I took your tribal leaders, wise and experienced men, and appointed them heads over you, chiefs of thousands, chiefs of hundreds, chiefs of fifties, chiefs of tens, and officials of your tribes. I charged your magistrates at that time as follows. Hear out your fellow people and decide justly between a person and a fellow Israelite or stranger. You shall not be partial in judgment. Hear out low and high alike. Fear no person for God, for judgment is God's. And any matter that is too difficult for you, you shall bring to me and I will hear it. Thus, I instructed you at that time about the various things that you should do. Whose idea is the judiciary according to Deuteronomy? Moshe. It is complete, Yitro is completely obliterated. No mention of Jethro. No mention of any origin for the judiciary, God forbid, being foreign and or predating revelation at Sinai Chorev. All right? So we just kind of take it for granted that this, he's reiterating stuff. Okay, it's a shortcut. You know, he doesn't want to go into the whole Jethro thing. The only reason to repeat that particular incident is to wipe out Exodus 18. That is the only reason to put that here. They already have a judiciary. The only reason to reiterate the giving of the idea of a court system is to obliterate Jethro from the story so that it is made very clear that it is Moshe who insisted on the judiciary, who, whose idea it is, and notice, you wouldn't notice this, I wouldn't have either if it weren't for studying all these people. What does Moshe say are the qualifications for a judge? Chachamim v'yiduim. People who are chacham, who are wise, right? And people who, who we know this word, yada, yodea, to know. To know in a very intimate way. To be experts, right, in, in these matters. Who are told in the Yitro Exodus version, who, what are the qualifications for a judge there? I won't ask you to remember. I wouldn't have either. Um, they are people who are experienced on the ground. They, it is not about wisdom in Exodus, right? It's about people who are honest, people who have basically proven themselves to be good leaders, right? By kind of doing rather than being uh, wise. And how is wisdom generally uh, gotten in, in this kind of chacham uh, sense? It is by learning. It is by study. Deuteronomy, according to many of the, the stuff, the argue, scholars I've been looking at, is saying it's now no longer your judges who were your really good people who kind of had practical sense, who had street smarts, 
who prove themselves to be honest, who prove themselves to be upright, you know, and, and good people by, by leading. That is not who the judges are going to be, according to Deuteronomy, in the new centralized judiciary. Who is going to be the judges now? The professional class. The learned scribes, the learned people who have learned and studied the law, who have studied its application, it is now a professional class of people. It completely disempowers the elders of the clan system who used to would have decided these issues among Israelites. It is now making it its own profession. If you, I don't want to overuse profession, but you understand what I'm saying. It's taking the scribal folks, folks of learning, folks of letters, folks who know the law, and it is now professionalized under the law. No longer do you just go to your elders who you trust in the, in the village and have them hear your case in the gates of the town. Gone. And Deuteronomy is saying this happened from the get-go in order to completely undo what's happened before and put in place a brand new system that you can imagine might not have been quite so popular. All right, so Richard is saying the reconceptualization of kingship in Deuteronomy and the Deuteronomic histories, transformation of Torah, <laughs> author Bernard Levinson. There you go. So in your chat, if you want to uh, copy that other article that Richard found online, please do so if you want to read more about this. Um, and Bernard Levinson, Bert gives us uh, the book he wrote, Deuteronomy, Hermeneutics, Innovation. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Okay, and Richard gives us that too. Okay, great. So um, I guess because that was a request if I had gone up higher. Um, okay, so uh, Jody, you've had your hand up for a long time. What would you like to say or ask? It was so <laughs> um, it, it It was a question that had to do way back in the beginning when you were saying, why would these this scroll have been hidden? Um and I had a thought that maybe they hid that scroll that they had read it and, you know, it was verified much later, but they hid it because they wanted to have idols. And I think there were prostitutes um, in the temple. And so therefore they hid that behind a wall. That was just my thought. Okay. So that, that if Deuteronomy is early as a reform, it might've been hidden because people didn't want to do what Deuteronomy was requiring. Right. Okay. <clears throat> um, so, so part of it is when else in Israel's history would there have been a push, right, to, to do something like this? So David Russo is asking, uh, who then would have made or designated a person as a judge? Um, so it, it's a good question. Uh, presumably there was a court in place that would appoint other judges in our story, of course, uh, in the desert story where this is all placed, of course, it's Moshe. Um, but, but Moshe says appoint for yourselves, right? So in Exodus recognizing that locals would have appointed, you know, the local community, the same way that we all vote for judges 
Like they would have decided whose authority they accept in their particular village. Um, Appoint for yourselves, Moshe says. So y'all need to figure it out. Like who you, who you believe are people of good character, who are upstanding, like, you know, who get it, who are practical, who have proven themselves, um, you know, who are honest. Those are, those are the people that you want to appoint to be judges. Now it is chachamim, right? It it is people who are wise, uh, meaning schooled uh, in the law who will be appointed. And, 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 and presumably, if you're centralizing everything in Jerusalem, it's the central authority in Jerusalem who will uh, appoint uh, judges to the judiciary. All right, so we saw Echa. How? How? Like, and it's a deep existential how am I supposed to do this, says Moshe. This is also this Shabbat. We always read this Parsha on the Shabbat exactly preceding Tisha B'Av. I was going to say, isn't it, Echa is the Lamentations that we read. Very good, Rita Efros. So Echa, how am I supposed to suffer y'all, right? Is, is Moshe remembering what happened in the desert? So we also get in the Haftarah for this week's reading because this Torah portion always precedes Tisha B'Av, the day on which we commemorate the destruction of both temples, by the way, Um, we, uh, we also read the, you know, the rabbis assign a haftarah, a concluding reading, not from the five books, from outside the five books to uh, finish the reading of the Torah in public. Lots of theories about why haftarah. A lot of people think it means a half Torah, like it's not real Torah, it's half Torah because it comes from the prophets or the writings. <clears throat> it's a nice play on the word. It's lovely. It's very clever. <clears throat> it, half Torah comes from the Hebrew word lifater, to conclude. Lifater, to conclude, to end. The noun of lifater is haftarah. The conclusion, the concluding of the reading is always from outside the five books. Why? Some people believe that the Romans, when they said no more Torah study or you die, you can't study or learn Torah or you die. The very clever Jews uh, then said, okay, well, we'll read from the prophets and these other books. It's not technically Torah. You can't kill us for that. Um, Another, my Google Hub just had something to say about that. (laughs) And is talking to me about the prophet by Khalil Gibran. Okay, so so if it's from those books, you can't kill us because it's not Torah. The other uh, idea and suggestion is that, if you recall, when did we start reading Torah publicly? Under... Ezra and Nehemiah, it's now reading to me, the prophet by Khalil Gibran. Um, <clears throat> when was Torah mandated to be read in public? Under Ezra and Nehemiah. When the first folks returned, right, from exile in Babylonia, they return. After 586, 50 years later, Persia wins, 
and Cyrus allows the Jews to return from Babylonia to Jerusalem. When they do that, they return under the leadership of the scribes, Ezra and Nehemiah, and they mandate a public reading of Torah on, you recall, on market days, Monday and Thursday, everyone at the mall had to stop their shopping and listen to a public reading of a portion of Torah. Why? Why go to the mall with your Torah and make people sit down and listen? Because they weren't going to do it otherwise. They weren't paying attention to the law. They were good Babylonians now. They were hanging out there. They liked it. Life was good in Babylonia. When they come back, Ezra and Nehemiah are like, okay, we got to do a hard reset here, people. You need to remember what Israelite law is all about, what Israelite society is supposed to be based on. Therefore, a public reading, because they weren't going to come to the synagogue to hear it. I know it's crazy. I know y'all are finding that hard to believe that Jews wouldn't come to the synagogue to hear Torah. I know, but try to imagine that that was the case. They weren't interested. So where did they take Torah? Did they say, we're going to make you come to shul? No. Did they say, we're going to come to your neighborhood and read it on your corner over a bullhorn? No. Where did they go? To the mall. Because guess what? Things haven't changed all that much. (laughs) They were interested in consumption. They were interested in doing deals at the marketplace. So Ezra and Nehemiah, rather than fight the Jews, because go try to fight the Jews and clobber them with Torah, does not work. So you go to them. You go to where they are. So that's why we, to this day, we read Torah Monday, Thursday, and Shabbat, because market days were Monday and Thursday. So why did I start that? So, right. So they were concerned that not only do the Jews not know the Torah, the five books of Moses, they don't read anything. So we'll sneak in at the end of our Torah reading, we'll sneak in a little piece of the other stuff that they're supposed to know too. We know they can't tolerate a lot. We've already read some Torah. They're already getting antsy. Let's sneak in a little bit of Jeremiah. Let's sneak in a little bit of Amos. So they chose from those other texts things that thematically would line up with the Torah portion so that it seemed to at least make some sense why we have to listen now to another part of another piece of the literature, right, of our sacred texts. Okay. So, echa, how can I bear the burden of you? Directly mirrors the haftarah. What is the haftarah chosen for this Shabbat right before the Tisha B'Av, before the ninth of Av? The Torah portion, the haftarah comes from Isaiah. And it's Isaiah's vision of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which makes total sense if you're going to put it right before Tisha B'Av. And in the Torah portion... Uh, and sorry, in the Haftarah, in the uh, quoting from Isaiah, Isaiah says, Echa hayita lizona. How? Again, an existential Echa. How has Jerusalem become a harlot? Right? 
the the uh, the prostitution becomes the metaphor for Israel having gone off and stepped outside of the the proper relationship, God's proper expectation of loyalty from Israel to Yudhe only. Right? We've talked about this a lot. Kinah. God is entitled to be jealous because there's an exclusive arrangement. So what if you step out of that, what are you? You a hoe. Right? We even use this today. You cheat on somebody, you're a hoe. Right? It's understood. So that language is still there. That betrayal, meaning of intimacy, of an intimate connection that you now have with somebody else that you're not supposed to have with having stepped out of that relationship, you're now a whore. So Jerusalem, echa haita lizona. How this existential like agony has she become a whore, a harlot. And Rita just beautifully reminded us, what is the book that we read from on the 9th of Av, on Tisha B'Av? Y'all are going to study with Micah, with Rabbi Hyman on Sunday, which is Tisha B'Av, um, or as my grandparents would have called it, Tisha B'Av, um, which, which rhymes with the word love in English. You can imagine where Jewish comedian, comedians went with that. So... Um, I haven't seen my love. I haven't seen her since Tish above, right? Hi, my Zelda. She took the money and ran with the tailor. Okay, so Echa, the book of Lamentations is what we read on Tish above. And the book of Lamentations is called Echa, again, after the first, like, word of that book. Echa, like, it's all vanity. How are we supposed to deal with this reality that it's all vanity? which my daughter quoted in her bat mitzvah speech. Um, thanks to Rabbi Nick Renner. So, echa, 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 over and over and over on this Shabbat, preceding, uh, preceding to Shabbat. The connection uh, also is through the fact that Deuteronomy says, if you don't comply with this law, what's the punishment? What's going to happen? Three guesses and the first two don't count. If you don't do this, Richard Rajay is nodding. If you don't do this, what's going to happen? What's the punishment? What's the consequence for not observing the laws of Deuteronomy? It's going to be bad, right, Richard? What is it exactly? What do you say, Cam? Huh? Is it death? Nope. That's too easy. Banishment. That's what I was going to say. Banishment. It's exile. Excommunicate. Yeah. It's exile. Not only will you die, your wives and children will be carried off. Your wives will be ravished in front of you before your bowels are pulled out of your abdomen. You will watch your wife being raped in front of your children who will then be carried off as slaves. It's way worse than death. You will lose sovereignty in the land. You can now, after I've spent a lot of time setting us up, now can you hear why that is resonant in the ears of the people and of the, of the people writing this and the people hearing this? 
Israel has fallen. What are they most afraid of? What is Hezekiah and Josiah? What are they most afraid of? That Judea will fall. So what is the punishment for not following what the, the revolutionary changes of Deuteronomy? They're not all revolutionary. Some of them are consistent, obviously, right? It's not a new religion. It's consistent with the other four books. But if you do not follow this law, what will happen? What happened to Israel will happen to you, Judea. And it is very close to you the knowledge of what that looks like because only a hundred years ago it happened to the Northern kingdom, right? So invasion and you are obliterated as a nation. And most importantly, your wives and your children will be subject to whatever somebody else wants to do with them. That is the worst thing, right? Isn't that the worst thing we can imagine? Is that happening to our loved ones? It's not my death that scares me the worst right? It's something happening, God forbid, to my family. And that's exactly what the Israelite is being told. The Jew, the person from Judah is being told right now, if you don't do this, you will lose sovereignty, you will be exiled, and you know what that means. All right. So I want us to go forward studying the rest of Deuteronomy through this lens. And I'm going to tell everybody they need to listen to this podcast um, before, right? Because it, it really changes how we read these texts. It really changes how we understand what's going on in Deuteronomy. Not that we should read Deuteronomy completely apart from the other four books. That was not the intent of the tradition right? The, the intent of the tradition is to have it be a whole. The final editor put them all together. My, my teacher of blessed memory, Dr. Tikva Frymer-Kensky, always got on my case about this. She said, Amy, you're always so eager to cut up the sources and take them out and, and appreciate them in their own right and what they're each about and what the history behind that one was and this one was. You, you have to also treat it as a whole because the final editor and the people studying these texts understood it as a whole. So I don't want to overemphasize how Deuteronomy is a reform of everything else because it's certainly consistent with lots of other things. But I personally, when I geek out, what, what makes me really happy is like, is going to this depth and going, oh, right, there's an agenda here. That doesn't disconnect me from this being part of the tradition. Instead, it's, it helps me appreciate why are we getting the story of that again? We already read that. Like, why is Moshe going over that and over that? We know this, right? It's because it's not a repetition, Davka. You, you're being sold on it being a repetition, but it's really a rewriting. It's a revision of the version before, okay? So we're going to read Deuteronomy through that lens. I want you to think all the time, all the time, all the time, centralizing authority, bringing it into the urban center of Jerusalem, and... The agenda is to subjugate all branches of leadership to the law. That is the agenda of the Deuteronomist, and we're going to read everything through that lens. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, 
www.ourki.org.